0: I was actually remarking to someone the other day, I, I went to grad school for screenwriting and people would ask me, why didn't you study directing? And I was like, because the actual making of a movie is like building a house. It's like
1: <laughs> <laughs> as much hard labor as it is creative. It is. It's Stanley Kubrick supposedly said, having been a still photographer for Time Magazine, I believe, uh, mm. before he became a director, that it's the same thing. It's problem solving. Filmmaking is problem solving. Yeah, so yeah. anyone who who doesn't want to be a director, I get it. You need a certain kind of, um, I say that with a, a mix of pride and shame, that we, you actually need a bit of a masochistic personality disorder or something to actually do this thing. <laughs>
0: that is Norwegian filmmaker Joachim Trier, whose acclaimed movies, sure enough, show a lot of sympathy for characters who are pretty rough on themselves. His debut, Reprise, was about two young friends in Oslo, one who beats himself up for not becoming a famous author, and the other who has a breakdown when he does. Trier's follow-up, Oslo, August 31st, depicts a day in the life of a self-sabotaging addict, and his latest film is about a woman named Julie trying and failing to find the perfect relationship. Its title is a phrase Norwegians apparently use a lot when describing themselves, the worst person in the world. I'm Rico Galliano, and welcome back to the Movie Podcast. Movie is the best place to stream beautiful handpicked cinema. On this show, we tell you great stories about beautiful cinema. Season two of the show is coming in June. Today, though, another special episode to tide you over. You are going to hear my interview with Joachim Trier about Worst Person in the World. Like all his movies, it deals with the crazy demands people make of themselves and each other, but it's also funny, achingly romantic and shot in a kind of magical light that's gonna make you wanna move to Oslo. Last week, just before the Academy Awards, and just as the movie opened in UK cinemas, where it's playing right now, Trier told me about its themes, its Oscar-nominated screenplay, his star, Renato Reinsva, who won Best Actress at Cannes for this role, and about the movie theaters, where he fell in love with breakdancing, Godard, and giant robots. Oh, and heads up, this episode contains spoilers. Thank you for joining me, Joachim Trier.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I read an interview with you about this movie, and you talked about wanting to make a realistic movie about the tribulations of modern love and the difficulties of different generations in kind of navigating love and sex. But I haven't
1: heard you say why. Why did that subject fascinate you? Why take it on? I think it's interesting how uh, films propose one reality and then we live another and sometimes they're quite separate it can be quite joyful to go to the movies and watch something that's far removed from the boring everyday life one has you know but i actually am very curious to explore what i think i see around me or what i have experienced myself not necessarily um autobiographical oh it was exactly this event or something but thematically or like feeling oh that's that feeling of Jesus, I'm at this age and love is still so difficult. Or why does it seem like everyone else is figuring out their love life and I find it hard? Or, you know, I've been through those phases. I've certainly in the past had moments where I felt very lost, you know, and the same with people around me. So I thought Julie was an interesting character because she's. At the start of the film, really great at maneuvering the kind of lifestyle changes and changing, you know, I want to be a doctor, no, I want to be a psychologist, no, I want to be creative, I want to be a photographer. She th- believes that she can be a bit of a chameleon, but when it comes to getting really close to someone, she finds that really hard, and I thought that was a characteristic that many people I know have been through or, or are still grappling with. Yeah. I, I actually, I
0: went back and I watched uh, Reprise again. Yeah. And it almost feels like a companion piece to Worst Person. It is, it's like characters trying to decide how they fit into society or whether they even should fit into society, whether it's a sellout yeah. to fit into society or even to have, you know, like a classic monogamous relationship. Why, Why is this a recurring theme for
1: you? think that's very personal I think it has to do with the environment and my family that I grew up in this politicized left-wing environment where there was the rebellion against my grandparents generation who had suffered tremendously during the Second World War in Norway Mm -hmm. and my, my grandfather having been a resistant fighter and barely survived just really never got over that terrible trauma of the war and I think that seriousness was countered in my parents generation with a sense of wanting to be free in the 60s and 70s and wanting to not abide to the rules of the grown-ups you know and trying to find a, a better freer way of, of living life. I myself got into punk and I was a skateboarder and in Norway, skateboarding was banned. It was illegal when I started doing it. So the cops would be chasing us like in the late eighties. And and we were like, you know, the authority figures are wrong. Skateboarding is fun. And you know, all that stuff became a part of how I also perceived creativity and identity. So I think in reprise, those guys are wanting to write novels and books, and they are feeling that if they just abide to the rules of the adults, they won't have anything to bring to their creativity or to their art. But being an artist is a totality. That's like all you could be. I'm happy I graduated from that way of thinking, and I'm glad I have other things in my life. (laughs) But I have certainly been one of those people. I remember going to film school at 23 in London, leaving everything behind and you know going for it and just dreaming and wishing that i could become a filmmaker and and maybe that's good for a part of your life but i think it's healthy to like julie goes through in the worst person in the world to realize that you actually maybe you need a home a place to be safe with other people
0: yeah and i mean for julie it also seems like a big thing i think we're left with her
1: thinking i'm going to figure out who i am and not what how other people look at me that, that's a very important thing i think absolutely which we're all struggling with. I mean, we, we it certainly hadn't hasn't become easier in our time and age. With oh, oh that picture of me on holiday at, on Instagram that I looked happy, didn't I? Oh, people are responding as if I'm happy. I must be happy, mm. but am mm. I happy? <laughs> you know, we're all going through this. Um, I want to turn to
0: your Oscar nominated screenplay. I read a quote from your co-screenwriter, and I'm paraphrasing here, I hope I get it right, but it's something along the lines of maybe we shouldn't begin building a screenplay based on kind of traditional narrative structure but like we should start with stuff that cinema is really good at like set pieces and suspense and musicality music yeah. so i'm wondering what were the kind of kernel very cinematic building blocks that you built this
1: movie on. that's a great question man thank you for asking that that's something eskiel my dear friend and co writer for five films the five films i've directed he said this, and I, I agree absolutely. I think this is our approach. Generally, I, my phone is filled with notes, like the yellow notepad is just filled with silly ideas. Some of them are turn out to be good, and some of them are you know, just <laughs> something. And sometimes they're very formal. Sometimes they are a moment. Sometimes they're a way someone is speaking. And then when Eskel and I sit down, we both bring our ideas into the room, and we try to feel out during that year when we make the script, sometimes more than a year, what we feel is cinematically fun to shoot for me as a director, but also what we feel could build character. So for this film, like for example, there's a set piece that an idea we had early, which was someone crashes a wedding party without knowing anyone. Uh, She plays around, gets drunk. She has conversation where she pretends she's like a doctor, something else, which she is not. She feels free, and then suddenly she meets someone that she likes a lot. Hi. Hi.
0: And
1: this guy likes her as well, and they both admit very quickly that, listen, we're both in relationships. We can't be unfaithful. But then they start thinking about what could we do, though? That's not being unfaithful, according to the rules. And they start doing all kinds of strange things with each other, that actually turn out to be quite intimate. They share a secret they haven't shared with anyone. They bite each other, like, is it okay to inflict pain on someone? That's not sexual. (laughs) They end up smelling each other's armpits. Like, they do a lot of embarrassing stuff to uh, somehow deeply flirt. But at the end of it, they still go, you know, we're, uh, we didn't cheat. We weren't unfaithful. Then they leave each other. And that was like the central
0: scene of the construction of the screenplay for you.
1: It was, of the early part, it set Julie's character into play because it's a playful, funny way of approaching the serious topic of monogamy. She's being both very honest to her own emotions in the moment, yet she's trying to do the right thing and not cheat on her boyfriend. And I think how you deal with that says a lot about who you are. So it was a good character scene to set up Julie. The moment a character or the characters come into play, we very, very quickly figure out what of those strange ideas that we have can kind of fit in a knot so if i had to define it your process would be kind of like uh, a whole bunch of scenes in search of a
0: character yeah well put speaking of which you you wrote my understanding is that you wrote this character for the actress renata Reinsva after she had a bit part in one of your early films and first of all i think there are actors listening to this right now who'd like to know what did she do in
1: that bit part that made you go i'm gonna write a full screenplay <laughs> based around this act yeah that's a good question. Yeah, it was actually the film Oslo, August thirty first, and that's ten years ago. Um, and we were shooting morning scenes, and to get the transitional light through a long sequence, we had to shoot, I think, eight or nine days with Renata on set, even though she only had this one line of dialogue. And and I realized she was her energy on set, and the fact that I could give her little things to do in the background. She wasn't the lead character, and she always came up with funny stuff every. Damn early morning at 5 a.m., she would th- bike around and laugh and have this incredible energy. I was like, Who is this person? <laughs> I mean, I'd cast her and I thought she was good at doing this line of dialogue, but she was really fun to have on set. And uh, I'm always rooting for the actors or the people who have like a particular style, but that I see haven't been given the the kind of the shot they deserve and she's certainly one of them. I've I've seen her do great work in theater for many many years but she never I mean it's this is also an important thing to mention is that Renata is quite young, you know, and beautiful looking and she got a lot of smaller characters in TV show as perhaps the antagonistic new girlfriend Mm. Uh, of the ex-boyfriend of the lead or something. like She would would get these parts where she was funny and she made the most of it, but maybe she was more cast as a type. What about her did you embed in the character? I know her quite well now, and I think there is a mixture of getting out of emotional tricky spots by humor and levity and charm that she does well, and she is all that. She's very funny. But she also has a, a sensitivity and a melancholia to her quite a serious perspective on life you know that, and i think like that mixture i, I find that very uh, endearing i want to go to the other main character in this
0: who to me is axel yeah the first boyfriend that she has in the film there's a moment at the end that i when speaking to people about this movie a lot of them are very affected by it. and i'll preface this by saying i'm close to your age yeah. and so is axel and the people that i'm talking to are tend to be close in their age to axel and he has this soliloquy almost where he's sort of mm-hmm. reflecting on his life and the fact that he has always been kind of a collector of objects and how he's nostalgic for a time when objects had a lot of power as opposed to now when it seems like you know everything's kind of ephemeral and maybe digital and i couldn't help but pop psychologize is that you speaking you know a former punk a guy who i know is a dj at times and like a record collector is that you
1: yeah i guess it's both Eskil and me and also trying to deal with something we're a bit ambivalent about in ourselves in our own life um it is certainly me who grew up believing that my cultural references and the bands that I' liked or didn't like defined who I was as a person. That's a very generational experience, I think. Uh, you know I, I I have a lot of friends at different ages and and young friends who are. Not so concerned with having like a life choice of whether you love The Who or Rolling Stone's best or something. I mean, you know, like that That time has passed a bit, it seems. And maybe for the better. And that's where, you know, we can't cling to nostalgia. And nostalgia is dangerous. Nostalgia is also a place where we, it's like a comfort blanket. In the past, you don't die because you know you lived. And the future is scary and mortality and time plays into it in violent and scary ways as you get older. And and I think that that, that moment in the film is about someone trying to reconcile was all that cultural orientation, what, what did it amount to? You know. And, so rather than to just say that I'm the guy who thinks that vinyl and Blu-rays are by principle better than the streaming world because I'm a, I, I don't know, I, I love the fact that I can have the weirdest discoveries sitting on a bus on my iPhone <laughs> that I would only be able to have in a New York record store, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I think that's pretty awesome. At the same time, th- th- there is that, that, every generation sees that at some point their thing has passed. And I think being in my 40s now, that's, yeah, yeah, that's personal.
0: For me too. And
1: actually, watching the character of Axel
0: talk about his youth hanging out at record and comic book stores that have now all closed, I couldn't help but think about the probably year's worth of my life I have spent in movie theaters. And of course, there's a lot of talk now that their time has passed. Next season on this show, we're going to tell the stories of some of the most important movie theaters in history, which made for a good excuse to convince Trier to indulge in a little nostalgia himself. And tell me about the most important theaters in his history.
1: I have a few, and they're all in Oslo, so I won't labor the point of the geography of them. But I, uh, there's a, a, the biggest screen in Norway is called the Colosseum. It's a, sort of a big, 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 big cinema. It's like a thousand seats or something, or more, even maybe twelve hundred. And I remember going to see a lot of the formative big films. Like I saw ET <laughs> three times when I was nine in that theater. I had my parents just take me back and yeah. I saw uh, Beat Street <laughs> <And> <laughs> no, I, mean, I think back now like the weird that Beat Street was that big but it was the breakdance movie you know yeah those are uh... two very different movies were they around know, the same time they are both 80s movies yeah they are and I, I went from being that dreamy kid that cried at the end of et to being a breakdancer in that year when i was nine this was you know 1983 or 1984 ish so it- so i mean that that was a big theater but i also saw like the uh, karate kid i remember years later also watching a lot of action movies there you know like i th- that big cinematic thing on one hand on the other hand also the the oslo cinematech that i started frequenting when i was a young aspiring intellectual in my late teens and watching I was like oh all of 80s Godard is playing in the next three weeks well I have to see all of that (laughs) going every day you know with my nerdy friends and like okay I like that one. I didn't understand anything, but it was cool. It had, uh, you know, it was some weird slow motion stuff with Disability Pair. That's great. I love that, you know. It's interesting. At a time when theaters were like that important, you know, like it was
0: such a center of a young person's life, you could almost gauge your development as a person by the movie theater that you were going to. Like there's the big theater that's where you're seeing like the big yeah. mainstream things. And then when you become a punk, you're like, well, then I'm moving on to the
1: art house. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely, that's 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 the journey. But I always kept one foot in each camp. You know, I was asked by Film Comment magazine uh, recently to do a guilty pleasures list, and and one of the films I remember being very moved by is the you know Transformers Two when uh, what? when um, <laughs> when the, when when they have the in the birch wood the, like the what's they call them the big robot the American um, tr- truck. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he gets killed, and it, you know, it's like it's kind of beautiful and weirdly Tarkovsky, when they're fighting out in those birch woods, and you know, so I, I have a weird, weird uh, association. I, mean, I I still love all kinds of movies, um, even though at the moment I'm really, I'm really interested in character and uh, human relatable stories in my own work. I, I still watch everything.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I am wondering if somehow that scene. <laughs> <laughs> the death of a transformer somehow wormed its way you know
1: subtly into some later film you made yeah well who knows <laughs> <laughs> maybe so exactly no but but this is the point i mean I, I i i think that there are some films that are easily defined on paper and they're easy to talk about intellectually and they're not always the films that Give me the rush you know that of, of cinematic brilliancy i think right. sometimes strange movies that are quite mainstream can do something with the camera and space and movement that to me reminds me of my primary fascination for cinema you could see it in tarkovsky and kubrick you know but you can also see it sometimes in in a musical or in an action film just the movement of something and uh feeling the rush of blood in your body like it's physical you're underwater with the character and you can't breathe you know that seductive uh, closeness to a cinematic experience yes it's it's one interesting when you look at kids growing into our culture looking at films for the first time as they're as, as they're small you know like they they're starting to understand the codes they're starting to understand how to read it and how effective moving images are. And they will always be. And I think when people talk about the theatrical experience dying and yes, it's changing, but if you take kids to the movies, you see how strong it is. It's it's like there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it.
0: Yeah, I read read somewhere that it's something like 80% of people in a movie theater, if you look at them while they're watching a film, their mouths are open. (laughs) Exactly. It's like you just forget to have even any (laughs) physical support in your face. You're so (laughs) enthralled. That's it. Um, Let me ask you as a filmmaker who's obviously been shown in festivals around the world, I'm sure you've seen your films in theaters around the world is there one where that you particularly like seeing your movies screened
1: yeah i mean i had a very special experience last year that i should share uh, in the context of cinemas because because of the pandemic i was not allowed to screen the worst person in the world for more than five people at a time oh wow so and i like to test i like to show my films while i'm editing to a lot of people not only filmmakers and colleagues but also just friends of friends you know people i don't quite know and just get their response to see what they're what they're interpreting what they're feeling and i was wasn't allowed to show so we had screenings like a, in a day we would do like four screenings of five people each and then later at the end of the day we could talk to a mass of people but i was never in the seat with a group which is very i really missed and then we're invited to can and i realized sitting in that fancy limousine on to the going to the red carpet that Holy Jesus! I'm going to show the film to two thousand three hundred people in ten minutes. Like for ten minutes from now, I'm going to actually have that experience for the first time, and I hadn't had, I hadn't warmed up to it. So I was suddenly got very nervous and 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 also excited, you know. But that that screening and people are very. Responding very well a lot of laughter and a great applause at the end and we were all moved and we started crying and every, You know again this, this interview now I'm, I'm the sobby guy and we're only talking about like mortality and crying here But I guess I am and, and at that moment was really important, but the actors and everyone, you know, it, it was really really wonderful so I think um It's interesting because we're talking about awards and the Oscars are coming up in a week We don't know how it's going to be but regardless Of awards and everything, at least if you have a great sort of premiere screening at a good festival, that's really a joy. And I'm so happy that these festivals exist. And create this little moment around a film because it's fleeting. And suddenly everyone's on to the next one, you know? Yeah. So it matters.
0: It is interesting to me, not this year, but last year. I'm usually somebody that's really on top of the Oscars. I always throw a party. Last year, obviously, I couldn't because it was COVID times and we weren't allowed mm-hmm. to be together. And also, I hadn't been to movie theaters. And it was the first time in maybe my entire movie going existence that I hadn't seen most of the films, even though they were more available to me online it was the fact that they hadn't been on movie screens was almost like kept me from seeing them like the the theaters you need to have the theaters there to create the moment to make you feel like oh this is something worth seeing
1: i agree i think the way forward for cinema the paradox right now is that a lot of things are gonna happen only on streaming platforms. But specialized cinematic experience films, whether they are art house things as they're called, personal films as I like to call them often, <laughs> or the the big blockbusters, I think those things will survive and they'll they'll exist out there. And it's very clear that there's a cultural discourse around those films. That is prominent also because people go to the theater and have that kind of deep viewing experience, and what I, I like to call deep viewing is is not it's about being in an audience with other people and the subconscious experience of sharing the film, and then afterwards even though sometimes I go to the movies alone, sometimes you also do it socially and you feel kind of more obliged to go and have a drink and talk properly about it or it's an event in your life to go there and you therefore you, what did you do last night? Oh, I went to the movies and oh, what did you see? And you know, the, So there is a system of appreciation of cinema that whether it decreases or increases, I don't know, it might change, it might become more specialized, but it's there and it's valuable yeah. and... Uh, I still shoot on 35. I still care about the movie theaters. And I, to be honest, I, a few years ago, I was scared. I was like trying to defend it. But now I'm like, fuck it. If people don't want to go, fine. See what happens. I dare you. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'm, I'm not so worried. It's going to be Okay.
0: Joachim Trier you can see the worst person in the world on big screens in UK cinemas right now and it'll be on Mubi in the UK and other countries starting May 13th check the show notes of this episode for details of where you can watch and that is our special episode of the Mubi podcast this week there are more to come leading up to June when we'll drop our full season two all about movie theaters great and small and often both Follow us wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss it. While you're at it, please leave us a five-star review. It helps others find and love us. We would love to hear your questions, comments, or what you think of Worst Person in the World once you see it. Email us at podcast at mubi.com. This episode was hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Galliano, Yuri Suzuki composed the theme music, and Martin Ostwick composed our poignant midpoint tune. Thanks this time to Kevin Lee and Julia Nowica, the show's executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.H. Aquarelle, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka for MUBI. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Watch movies.